You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are continuing through the book of Revelation as a whole. If you're new to us, obviously, the book of Revelation, this is the last book of the Bible, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, and it does pretty much wrap up the history of this age, if I could say it like that, and brings us into the time of the kingdom and even through into the eternal state after that. But we are not there yet. We are dealing with this final period of history. We have been in chapters 12, 13, and 14 in these sort of interval chapters that provide us greater depth about different things. Remember in chapter 12, we saw the dragon who wanted to persecute the woman who brought forth the child. We spoke about how this was Satan's attempt to kill the Jewish nation before they brought Jesus into the earth. And this explains why we have anti-Semitism across the world today too. Chapter 13 gave us more details about this coming world ruler, commonly known as the Antichrist, the one who will stand in Christ's place, will be against Christ. We spoke about how he will gain ascendancy over the earth, over the governments, the militaries, and the economic system of the world during these last days. And we spoke a little bit about the mark of the beast and all these things that people like to talk about. But all in all, those two chapters present a pretty bleak scene. And then last week, we dealt with the first five verses of chapter 14. And we're going to read them again for context because we're going to move straight on to the following verses now. So let's read chapter 14, verses 1 to 5 together. This is what we covered last week, but we'll do a small recap. So it says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And we spend a lot of time on that verse there. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. And we describe this almost as what I call the photo finish. If you could imagine the great warrior, the general, after his army is victorious, he stands in a position of victory, and the portrait of him is painted. And this is basically what we have here. After the lamb returns and he defeats all those who are standing against him, the beast and all of the people who follow him at this time, he, ta- he makes his way to Mount Zion where he stands there with his armies and this is a victory scene. And I feel like at this point in the book of Revelation, we have this little interlude that shows us a brief glimpse of the end because as we are reading about saints being persecuted, uh, the world system at this time, it's bleak reading and this is just a reminder to us very short period of time the lamb is going to be victorious standing on mount zion and all of the followers of the lamb will be there with him this is the photo finish remember i said we talked a lot about the word behold then i looked and behold the lamb we talked about behold this was the idea of pay attention open your eyes and the lord always uses this in the bible when he wants us specifically to pay attention to something a point that he is making and the point here is obviously that the lamb will be victorious The Lamb is once again at the centre of this scene on Mount Zion. And you could read the whole book of Revelation and you could argue that the Lamb is at the centre of the whole book of Revelation as he is the centre of the whole scriptures, as he is the centre really of the whole universe. 
So now we go forth from this photo finish scene, we move on a little bit and we're given more specifics about other events that will happen during this final seven years of history. And we're now going to see the announcements of three angelic messengers and what they have to say for the earth during this last period of time. So let's read verses six and seven together, please. It says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and springs of waters. So he says he sees another angel. Now another, the, mo the last angel that we had mentioned was in chapter 11, and it was an angel, another angel who announced, he said in 11.15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. These are the sorts of announcements that these angels have in the midst of this period of history. This angel is flying in mid-heaven. That seems to be a way of describing the upper atmosphere as in something that is visible from the earth. It says he has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. Now, interestingly, there's actually much discussion amongst people about what this actually entails at this time. Because when you see what the angel says, it's not really the gospel as we would understand it today and thus many people have many different views now the way i understand this it's preaching of the good news it's always the same the blood of the lamb redeems us from sin and is paid for all of our sins yet we could could make an argument that through different eras of redemptive history this is obviously focuses of this are slightly different and what i mean by that if you go back to the time of the patriarchs Although you are always saved by the blood of Christ, and that is always what can once for all take away our sins, at a certain point it says Abraham was justified by his faith, his faith in God at that time. He hadn't obviously been preached the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ at that point. He didn't know that. But when we get to the book of Hebrews, we learn that that faith that was credited to him was not fully accomplished, as in the sins were not fully taken away until Christ died on the cross. This is what it's getting at here. If you read the beginning of the book of Gospels, of the Gospels, you'll see it's always phrased, repent for the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's the same gospel, I believe, but it has a focus upon the nearness of the coming kingdom. And I believe that's a similar thing that we have here, being in that final stage of history, the nearness of the coming kingdom is a focus of this angel's eternal gospel that he's preaching. Now, this is interesting because... It's a different focus, but it's something very similar. What we really have here, if we could call it like this, is last orders. It's the final, final call to the earth to repent and believe because the hour of his judgment has come. And this is the final judgment. Because the judgment is here, it's almost done at this stage. You are right at the end. The only option will be to enter the kingdom or to be removed from the kingdom and confined somewhere else. They are the two options that are available to mankind. It's the last chance saloon, and it is really quite a sobering thought for us. If you take the big scheme of the Bible, big panorama of redemptive history, ever since man handed over dominion of this world to Satan in the Garden of Eden, God gave mankind to Adam and Eve in order to be his representatives here, really, to man the world. But we sinned and we handed that over to Satan. And ever since then, Satan has been called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world with a small g, and he has had his way in many ways. But 
At the same time, we know from the Bible that ever since that happened, we've seen God acting in history to redeem his people to himself. And you get this right in Genesis chapter 3 and all the way onwards. He made a covenant with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, through which he would accomplish his plan of redemption. He brought an entire nation into being to show the world who he was. That was supposed to be the purpose of Israel in order to represent God, to show the people who are separated from him that there is a way to the Father, that there is a way back to him and what his qualities and attributes are. Now, of course, we know that Israel failed in this regard in many ways, but yet we're still going to see the future that they have. We've already seen it a lot in this book. We will see it more. He did mighty miracles in their midst. He dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, with the Shekinah glory for them to follow. Yet still mankind preferred the darkness over light in many ways. Still the enemy of our souls was drawing people away from the Lord. All through the dark history of his people, he pleaded with them. He sent them messages. He sent them prophets. He sent them priests. He was warning them of the consequences of straying from the Lord. And then we move into slightly more recent history, history, he decided to come to earth himself in the form of a man. His plan was always to become the mediator between God and man, to die for the sins of the world, to defeat Satan and the power of death all in one go. And this he did, and he did it perfectly. And then after that, he sent his spirit to be on the earth, to form a new entity on this earth called the church. And that body would be commissioned to tell every creature about what he has done. We were commissioned to be a people who would live with a kingdom ethic even before the kingdom has arrived in order to really display the excellencies of the one who called us to his service. That is our purpose, really. The whole of human history can be understood in those ways. The whole of human history could be understood as God seeking a way to dwell with his people, seeking a way to reconcile his people to himself, we could say. The last 2,000 years, the church's commission has been to do exactly that. And the way that we do that is through this eternal gospel. Using the gospel as a vehicle to bring that peace between God and man, to bring that reconciliation between God and man. And now in this period of the book of Revelation, chapter 14, we are looking at the end of history in this scene. That rebellion that was begun all those years ago in the Garden of Eden and has been with mankind ever since, it's reaching its peak now. Satan is having his final attempt to bring his desired kingdom on the earth, and he is at the top of that kingdom in his own mind. He is finally trying to receive the universal worship that he always wanted through his Messiah figure. Remember our studies in the book of Isaiah. We've just done Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend to the Most High. I will raise my throne. This was Satan's desire. He always wanted that worship that God desired, which is why he fell. And he feels like he's going to finally accomplish that at this period of history here. Now, he's trying to get rid of everyone who would stand in his way. We've read this in the book of Revelation. This is why he has such anger against anyone who names the name of Christ, anyone who follows the Lord at this time, and he seeks to kill them. The idea is he wants his kingdom with him at the top, and you don't want any enemies in your kingdom. That's his point. That's one of the reasons why he wants to get rid of everyone who names the name of Christ. Christ is a rival king, as far as he, the way Satan is understanding it, and he wants rid of everyone who would follow this rival king. That is why we see such persecution of Christians or of believers or saints at this time. And it's almost like the imitation we've talked of in previous studies. Remember, this is basically what's going to happen when Christ comes to set up his kingdom. There will be no enemies in his kingdom either at this time to begin with. 
anyone who is following the beast will be removed before that kingdom starts. This is how it goes. So Satan is trying to have his day here. And here at the very last hour, we see the final supernatural display of God's desire to save his people. Now, I would say that this is probably happening before or during the time when the mark of the beast is being rolled out globally. Do you remember we talked about the whole point of the mark of the beast, regardless of whether you believe it's some chip or all those sorts of things? I think that's missing the point. The point of the mark of the beast it is an identification. It is an acknowledgement that you are throwing your lot in with that government, with that person at this time operates very much like a political flag in some ways, and more so probably, but that is the idea. It's again, we talked about it, it's a replication of how the high priest used to have to have the name of God on his forehead in Old Testament times to represent that he was a servant of the Lord. The mark of the beast is to represent that you are, no, that you are a servant of the beast at that time. This is what was going on here. Now, this is one final chance, I believe, to make the right choice for these people before it is over. This is the final call. This is the actual, and many people argue that this is actually the final fulfillment of what Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse, discussing this period. Matthew 24, 12 to 14, speaking of this time, he says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I always find that a fascinating description, if you think of, we're talking about this time of intense persecution, judgment, Satan's wrath, God's wrath on the earth, and the thing he says about humanity is your love has grown cold. I would argue we see that happening, don't we, already today? You see the way nations are divided over different things. You see the way people are forming into these tribalistic groups again, and it gets very vicious, almost like the early days of mankind. Your love will grow cold. He goes on, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's very sudden, you see there. Now, I'm not arguing one way or the other that this is actually that, but it does seem to fit that, yes, the church has been taking the gospel out through the entire earth. Church is gone at this point. This is the final, final period. Once this angelic messenger preaches, it says here, look, doesn't it, to every tribe, tongue, and nation in Revelation, that is who the angel will be preaching to. It seems to have fit in with Jesus' words. Once that, once that is done, the end will come. We're going to see that end in a few chapters in the book of Revelation. But sense the urgency here. I think this is, this is desperation by the Lord, I would say, desperation. He's begging people at this final stage to be reconciled, to make the right choice. You could say the ship is about to sink, and those without the life jacket are going down at this point. This is it. It's the final era. And this reminds me very much of a story, many of you have probably heard this before, of the man called John Harper, the unknown hero of the Titanic. A wonderful story about this old gospel preacher. John was a Scottish preacher and missionary. He was a church planter too. He established a, a church in Glasgow. Actually, his church in Glasgow is still thriving today and still bears his name, Harper Church. John Harper, that was his name. He was invited back in the early 20th century to go and preach at the Moody Church in Chicago, famous church at that time. And he was to take his daughter and his young cousin with him. And in April of 1912, John boarded the Titanic to go across to preach at Moody's church. And if you know the story of the Titanic, the last day that the Titanic sunk was a Sunday. John was attending the morning service as they would have on that ship at that time. And he was seen witnessing to people after that service and conducting the prayer meeting as was his way. And then at 11.40 that same night, the ship struck the iceberg and... I'm sure you've all seen the movie. I don't need to 
elaborate on that. But as soon as John learned what was happening, he rushed to get his daughter and his cousin into the 11th lifeboat, and then he rushed back to the people on the ship. And as the water began filling the Titanic, John was heard shouting for the women and children and the unsaved to get into the lifeboats. <laughs> the women, the children, and the unsaved to be put on the lifeboats. 18 of the ship's 20 lifeboats had been lowered, but this, as, we, as you probably know, there was only enough to really hold just under half of the passengers on board, and John was among the 1,500 passengers left on the sinking ship who found their way ultimately into the icy waters. For over an hour, John swam urgently from one to another of those who were dying of hypothermia to bring the gospel to them using Acts 16. One young man was clinging to some debris from the ship, and John asked him if he was saved, and the man replied, no. And as the man drifted away, John shouted, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A few minutes later, the current brought the two men together and once again, John urged him to trust in Christ for salvation. And then and there, the man believed. But John, aged 39 at this point, he'd given his life jacket to another, slipped under the water, never to be seen again. At 2.20 a.m. on the 15th of April, the Titanic broke apart and sank deep into the ocean. There were only about half a dozen, dozen people who survived being in the water who were actually picked up by the lifeboats after them. And among them was this young Scotsman who four years later at a meeting, in, a revival meeting in Canada, testified that he was the man that John had shared the gospel with in the waters. And he's how we know a lot of what happened here. And I like that story because the picture of the sinking ship has often been used as a, in evangelism to, as a way to describe this. And here we have this one servant of the Lord desperately swimming from person to person before he would suffer hypothermia to tell them of the gospel. The urgency and the desperation of the whole event precipitated the imminent end of those on board and that created the urgency for this man. Time was short, basically, and he knew it. I see a similar thing in our text here going on. The angel offers the final, final call on salvation to the world because once they take that mark of the beast it says very clearly that's it there is no repentance for them anymore ultimately the ship is going down at that point and you are not getting off it but interestingly not just for the time of the tribulation the bible seems to encourage us to have that urgency even today in this age often emphasizing that the time is short that the days are coming to an end and often we see the apostles using the same urgency, begging people, literally begging them to be reconciled to God. Because in their view, they understood very much like that Titanic, the ship was sinking. And this is an uncomfortable thought for us today, particularly us Christians in the Western world, because it's one of the dangers that comes from being too comfortable, is that we don't think like this. Do we? It's very easy, you know, life is busy, I understand that, and we're all going about doing what we do. But we do have quite a lot of warnings in the Bible that that sort of attitude will be the attitude that characterises people in the last days. And remember, the church should be different from the people. Second Peter 3, verse 4, Know this first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. And what he's saying, people are going to say, stop talking about the second coming. You're talking about nonsense. Life just goes on. You ever heard that expression? That's, that's basically the idea here. No need for the urgency 
of the kind of urgency for the gospel that he is talking about here. And this is another reason why I believe eschatology in many ways is a healthy thing for the church to study. Because it is always, historically in the history of the church, created that urgency in people. It reminds us that we are not to think of this world as our eternal home, lest we become at ease in it. And only those who are at ease are likely to think like those people, those mockers in Second Peter there. Amos 6.1 says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. This is a, a prophecy that the Lord brought against Israel at that time as they would come into the land, as they would become comfortable, as they would get very well taken care of in this land of milk and honey, the Lord said, when that happens, you need to be very careful because when you are like that, you are more likely to forget about me. And this, we know the history, they did forget about the Lord. They disobeyed the Lord, they strayed from his word, and thus they ultimately ended up destroying themselves in many ways. Foremost on the Titanic, they were at ease. It was a luxurious ship, eating and drinking and dancing and excited to be on that ship. Little did they know, half of them were already dead. If you think about it like that, that's very much an analogy, I think, to what we have going on here. Look at verse 7, please, Revelation. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and springs of water. The angel commands three things here. And you must remember that this warning is in the midst of judgment, the final judgment, really, on this earth in some ways. He says, fear God. That is a pretty strong command. We've talked about what the fear of God means, this understanding of who he is, his righteousness, and how he has the right to judge. He goes on to say, give him glory. You can't give him glory unless you really acknowledge who he is. That's the point. And I believe the reference here is back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, which is that famous chapter that gives us the creed of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That famous confession of faith. But it goes on and in chapter, uh, verse 13. He says, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. That is what it means, really giving him glory at this point. This is the very last chance these people will get before those bold judgments are poured out on the earth. He says, worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the seas and the springs and waters. This is an interesting emphasis because you might think the emphasis would be to worship him, you know, who came and who died for us and did all these other things, talk about Jesus. But as he does on occasion throughout the Bible, we see God as creator being emphasized here. And I think that's very actually quite pivotal. It emphasizes the distinction between the creator and the creation. And this is a distinction, really, which is the foundation for all right worship in this world. Anything that denies that is actually false. And if you think about it, when you go through, many of the false religions that we have in the world do deny that. Most of the Eastern, the pantheistic religions do teach that in some way God is in everything in the world. God is one with his creation. Or that there is a divine energy in all creation and we must ascend to a higher plane before we can tap into that energy, if I could put it like that. All of these things deny that God is above his creation. That's the whole point of this. He is separate from it. He is transcendent over it. The point being, therefore, he has the right to do what he wants with it. That is the point that is being emphasized here. This is why I believe, in many ways, the Bible starts with that creation account. The salvation and the redemption starts in Genesis chapter 3, really. 
But before that, we have Genesis 1 and 2. Most people don't know what to do with those verses. They think they're just cute, poetical chapters kind of describing what's happened. There is a reason. They show us that God is separate from his creation and his creative word is the power that created it. It's a very important thing here that we have going on. And it's no surprise that when we're dealing with the final period of Earth's history, we once again have this emphasis on God being the creator. It goes back to Genesis, really. (laughs) In rejection of this, also goes back to Genesis, goes back to the Tower of Babel. Actually, we've talked about this. We will talk about it again in a few chapters. We see here in Revelation the elements of the world, the natural order, are being shaken. They are being devastated in many ways. And it is a reminder that God is the one who created it. He has the authority to do this to his creation. And I also would just say as a a slight caveat, why do you think the evolution-creation debate has been such a big debate in the history of the church? It's not just an issue of science. We know that it's more an issue of philosophy than it is of science. And philosophy and worldviews always address God one way or the other. Even if they don't address God, by not addressing God, they're actually addressing God, if I could say it like that. The issue of this, one of those worldviews denies God's creative involvement in the world, even going against what we know of logic and rationality, because we know that the earth, the creation, everything that's in it is founded upon information, highly complex, specified information. We know from experience that that sort of information only comes from an intelligent source. Yet, to even consider intelligent source is ruled out of the academy before you even examine the evidence. That is philosophy, that is not science, and that is what we have going on here. And that is why I also think it's such a shame that so many in the Christian church seem to want to absorb that worldview and try and add it to the book of Genesis. The text just simply does not allow that. And it's actually more than just being an issue of apologetics for today, like I believe. When you get here at the end, you see the issue of God as creator is pivotal, and it gives us one of the reasons why he is righteous to judge the creation in the process, because it will be very destroyed, but God is also the one who can renew. And he does do that for the millennium as we go ahead in this. Creation equals intelligence, intelligence equals power and authority, and that leads us again to his right to judge. Now we see the positive response to this angel's message just in the next chapter. We'll study it more in depth last week, but just flip over to read the first part. Revelation 15, verses 3 to 4, the song of Moses and the Lamb. Notice it's very similar. It says, Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's like a rhetorical question. And that's the exact message that the angel commanded. Fear God and give him glory. And now we see the song of the redeemed. That's exactly what they're doing at this time. But if you move on to chapter 16, you'll also see the negative response. The people who did not respond to this final call. Revelation 16, verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give God glory. You see these themes coming out again here. Let's look at verse 8. And another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So now we have a focus on this issue of Babylon again. Now I'm not going to spend too much time on it in this text because... 
very shortly, chapters 17 and 18, we're going to have two whole chapters about Babylon where I'll get into it in a lot of depth. But we'll give a small introduction now. There's a lot of talk about Babylon. What does it mean? Is it talking about a world religious system? Is it talking about, some people say it's the Roman Catholic system, the ecclesiastical system? Obviously, for most of church history, because of the reformers, they all said that the Antichrist was the Pope and the, the Babylon was Rome. And that's pretty much been a common view throughout church. Many, some see it as Jerusalem. Many see it as this world system of government. And on and on it goes, as you can imagine. Now, I'm going to present to you, I believe simply Babylon is Babylon. That's what the text says, if I could say it like that. Babylon is just that. Now, we may not see Babylon, modern-day Iraq, being a centre of world affairs again today at this point, but that's just a matter of faith and timing, really, isn't it? Many people reading the scriptures who saw that Jerusalem was to be come back under Jewish control had no way that that could happen except faith and timing in the promises of God. I believe that will be critical. Now, I would also, having said that, believe that it's not just talking about a specific city. I believe it is talking about a religious world system and economic world system that will flow from that place. And that has actually been with us, like we mentioned previously, since the Tower of Babel. It is a representation of man's organised rebellion against God. And you'll find shadows of this through many places in the world. We've studied this a little bit as we've gone through Revelation. If you go back to our study on the letter to Pergamum, I believe, where the altar of Zeus was, Satan's throne, we talked a little bit about these old Babylonian religions and how they migrated across the world. And we'll, we will get into that in depth in a couple of chapters. But that is what we have here. I believe this will be a centre of where this final world ruler is actually heading his government at this time. And notice it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And elsewhere it's called the great city. Now I believe this gives us a hint to the fact that this is talking about Babylon. Babylon's a very interesting subject in the scripture, used in many different ways. But I believe we have a type here laid down for us. Babylon the great. Where does that name come from? Ties in with our Isaiah study too, actually. Do you remember we've just been studying in Isaiah a prophecy against Babylon, where during this prophecy against the king of Babylon, the author, the prophet Isaiah, seems to start addressing the person behind the king of Babylon, Satan. We had those famous five I wills of Satan. It's the same sort of thing going on here. There's a word association, though. The first time that we have Babylon called the Great, Babylon the Great, it's, it's almost like a title, came from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, the historical emperor ruler of Babylon. You'll find it in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 30 to 32. It says the king, Nebuchadnezzar, reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now notice the phraseology that we have here. His might, his power, for his glory. And what was the angel saying? Fear God and give him glory. It's the exact opposite. So you can see why Babylon is used as a type here. But it also says, goes on in Daniel 4, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
To you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognise that most high is ruler, is ruler, the most high is ruler over all. And on and on it goes. Now I like this, I find it fascinating. It was his pride and the exaltation of Babylon, his kingdom, that resulted in him being turned into a beast. You could say it like that. And how long did he live as a beast for? Seven years. King of Babylon, beast for seven years. Now again, we're reading about the final days of Babylon and we see a beast ruling over for seven years. And ultimately, one day, it says at the end, all will bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it willingly, some will not do it willingly, but they will still acknowledge it. Verse 9. Then another angel, let's just read down to verse 13 now and we'll finish. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast of his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. So now we see the eternal connection to their actions here. It says that those who have accepted the mark they are the ones who have rejected this final call to salvation and they will be left to suffer what is coming. Now, many people get uncomfortable when you read verses like this. That's really precisely the point. You should be very uncomfortable when you read verses like this. But I just remind you, this is the final, final period of this era of history. It has to come to an end. But the whole of history before this is God calling people not to be involved in this. That's the whole point. Everything he's done has to prepare a way for people to avoid this, even right down to that final angel preaching the eternal gospel, even for those at this time. And yet there are still those who will side with the beast. And it says, the wine press of the wrath of God, and it's described as a cup of wrath. Now, you might be familiar with that term. You'll find the cup of wrath mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. Most significantly, you'll find it mentioned by Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus mentioned it? Right before he's going to the cross and he's praying to his father and he says, oh father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's referring there to this cup of wrath, but he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is a point you must remember as we're reading about these passages that are quite unsettling, Jesus willingly took the wrath of God. He drank from that cup, not for himself. He did that for us so that we would not have to. That's what we need to understand as we're reading these judgment passages. Yet here now we have a people that we're reading about who do refuse that substitution. They do refuse the fact that he did that, just as we have those people today. And instead, they have chosen to worship the beast. Let's go back to our Titanic example to hopefully make it a bit clearer. What we are really seeing here, if you could imagine for a moment that ship is sinking, half of it's already underwater, 
within a few minutes, probably the rest of it will be. People are on there. A lifeboat comes to the side, offering to pick up a number of people. Yet rather than saying, praise the Lord, thank you so much, you've saved us, we, could, we were about to die, we couldn't save ourselves, they simply say, no thank you, I'm not sure if I like the look of you, don't like what you're, don't like what you're selling, I'm quite happy to try it on my own, I will sort myself out. Or, in the context of the tribulation, they say, actually, there's a guy over on that end of the ship, speaks much better than you do, he's much more impressive than you are, I've seen him do quite a few mighty things, in, in fact, I'm going to throw my lot in with him, I'd much rather take my chances with him, he says he's going to get us all off and we're going to, we're going to be with him, so carry on past. That's pretty much what we have going on here in the world. We see that, people do that. In the tribulation, people do that too. It sounds crazy, and for us as believers, it's also devastating. For God, it is also devastating too. But that is ultimately where your decision gets you. At this point in history, there is nothing left to do but listen to the final call or drink from the cup of God's wrath. Because that wrath must be poured out in order to set up the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, and those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, whilst this is specifically addressing the fate of these people in the tribulation, it does tell us that punishment for is endless for the lost. An unpopular view in the church today. Many like to downplay these sorts of things in the church not realising the effect that this has on our theology. Popular novel views like things called annihilationism, if you've heard that. The view that once you're dead, your soul is just annihilated anyway, so don't really worry particularly too much about it. Even in the evangelical church, that is becoming very popular. It blunts the seriousness of sin, it blunts the holiness of God, and it blunts the reason for the judgments of God and his coming kingdom. You won't find any of that in the book of Revelation. Such attempts to weaken sin provide us with little urgency, particularly the urgency that we see people like John Harper having, or we see people like the angel here having, all throughout the whole Bible, the apostles having. Now, much of the misunderstanding about the idea of eternal punishment actually stems from a misunderstanding about some properly basic facts about God. Let me put it to you like this. Eternality, I use a slightly fancy word here, is an ontological necessity with God when it relates to life. Let me explain to you what I mean to that. This is a point that's often left out of this discussion. The discussion is usually, how can God be morally justified in sending people to hell? That's a discussion that we can have. But we need to go back and have our, what we call properly basic facts, in place first. Think about this. God is life himself. The life that God creates, I'm talking about nefesh life, the Hebrew word, talking about the spirit, human life really I'm referring to, the spirit that is designed to commune with God, basically. That is life that is designed in his image. By its very nature, it is eternal, not temporal. That is what life is. We misunderstand that because we've been living on a planet that's been fallen and corrupted by sin for so long, we think death is almost the, the, the given in this world. But life is eternal. Now, yes, sin separated us from that source of life and caused the physical death process, but the soul is still eternal because life, by its very nature, comes from God, the one who we are representing, the one who we are imaging, and his life is eternal. Therefore, there is no other sort of life. Therefore, it is just a brute fact of existence that life is eternal like that. 
The life that God creates is eternal when it's designed like that. And this is something we fail to grasp. This is why life is said to be honoured above all else. Its very likeness testifies in some way to the image of God. This is why in the scripture taking the life of an image bearer was considered to be the ultimate crime, one that would forfeit your own life in that respect. Yet we see here those who refuse to repent, we could say those who decide to stay on the ship, eternal punishment is the logical necessity of those realities because that is the very nature of life. It is not get annihilated afterwards. It is eternal. And for those that choose not to have that eternality of life with the Lord, there is another place that they will be sent to. And that is basically what we have here. And then from that, you can move into the issues of God's holiness, justice and righteousness in judging sin and rebellion. And we will deal with that more as we go through this book. I know a lot more could be said on that. The real focus of this text, however, is to contrast these two destinies. You might notice the phrase, it says for those who reject the call that they have no rest day and night. They have no rest. I mean, then what does it say in verse 13 about those who do? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds will follow them. Rest and no rest. That's one way to think, really, of destiny. There is a time, this time in the tribulation will be tough for believers. Most likely they will be killed at this time. But they know they will have rest as soon as that happens. Their labours, their deeds, their, their faith will follow after them into the kingdom. But those who choose the beast at this time may have power for a brief period when the beast is in charge of the world. But in the end, they will have no rest. There will be no rest forever for them. So what is the takeaway? These are big themes. These are tough issues. When we step back from this, we see the flow of history. The only real question, I believe, that matters for us in this age and the age to come, we don't have any assurance that we will be here tomorrow, really, do we? None of us. We have no assurance that we don't. We just don't know. We do know, however, that we are on the Titanic. The iceberg of God's judgment is coming upon this world soon because of sin and rebellion. The Bible presents that very clearly. Yet, unlike the Titanic situation, God has prepared a way of salvation that is available for all who would repent, not just for half, for all who would repent of their sin, who would believe the good news. That is why it is simply called the good news of salvation by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, the judgment is coming for those who would reject that, but remember, Christ has already drunk that cup of judgment for those who place their faith in him and are secure in him. And therefore, there is no more condemnation and there is no more wrath of God for those who are in his beloved son. And therefore, I would submit that the most logical and rational thing for all of us to do is to heed the warning of Jesus Christ, heed the warning of the captain of our souls, the captain of the ship, to place our faith in him, to repent of our sins, find our rest in him, and therefore, we do not worry about the wrath of God. The thing we worry about is trying to make sure other people understand it and that they place their faith in him too. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.